I'm well-researched up. I didn't like leave all this stuff to you know, chance or whatever. But here's what I did. I did something that I, I haven't done in a huge long time. I panicked a little bit and I tried to call all my friends and said, hey, what do you think about this passage or whatnot? And none of them were available. So I did what I could. I, the only option I had is I asked Google. <laughs> and uh, what's incredible is I think that some of the answers are quite hilarious, actually. So hopefully you could hear this. That's why I've got this mic on. So if some of you have no idea what I'm about to do, I'm about to talk to a computer. All right? So, okay, Google, when does the world end? The ancient Mayan calendar stopped in 2012. If that teaches us anything, it's if you don't finish something. It's not the end of the world. <laughs> One more. She's got a ton of answers. Okay, Google, when does the world end? Scientists haven't reached a consensus on this one yet, so I can't be sure. But I have a feeling we're not going anywhere for a while. So there's plenty of time to watch cat videos on YouTube. There you go. That's all I have for an introduction, so there you go. Let's pray. Lord, thank you so much for your reminders, your constant reminders to us about how good you are and what it is that you do in our lives and all the more that you want to do in the days to come. God, we're about to dive into something that your children have been fighting for over centuries. So Lord, I pray today that you would give us the ability to hear what your spirit is saying through all the noise. You would give us the ability to focus in on the right thing this morning. Lord Jesus, I pray that if anything, our sight of you this morning would become that much clearer. Father, I pray against the spirit of fear and confusion. For we know that some of these issues have divided us as a people, and I know that breaks your heart. I know that some of these issues that we're about to talk about this morning have rifted families, have rifted friendships, have taken, place, have taken people to places where I know, God, it breaks your heart. And so, God, if there's any measure, I pray for your spirit to heal those things. I pray, if anything, that you would use us as people who would step into those worlds where that healing of understanding is needed. Father God, I also pray that you would prepare us as a people that as we hear this stuff, our hearts just wouldn't be filled with joy just so that we could say that everything's okay with us right now, but God, that that would fuel us to walk out these doors to be able to represent your kingdom in places where your kingdom is not represented yet. And so, Holy Spirit, I pray for open doors. I pray for paved pathways. I pray for new visions, new dreams, new ideas of places where we may have thought they're dead ends. Lord, may we hear your voice as those disciples heard what Jesus was saying to them in that very passage. Lord, I, I also know that 
The enemy doesn't want, want us to march out in strength and in confidence in who you are. So I pray against him in the name of Jesus. I pray that if there are distractions or if there are things taking us away, trying to rob us from fully understanding and drawing close to you, I pray against that in the name of Jesus. And for your people, Lord, may we continue to reflect Jesus every day in the places that we live, in the places that we work, go to school, and do everything else. We pray all these things in Jesus' name. Amen. If you have your Bibles with you, um, we're going to be looking at Matthew chapter 24. And uh, if any of you have ever come across Matthew chapter 24, um, you'd understand that those 280 pages that my friend sent me are, are rightly so, just absolutely chock full of details that, you know what, for anybody who's reading it for the first time would scare the life out of you. And that's the thing, if we don't focus on the right thing of what's actually going on, it could be a scary and daunting thing. I love what Kevin uh, said last week, and you know, he, I was going to put a picture of his face up there and a quote, but I'm not sure he would have loved that. He, he said something about how we should focus not just on how this coming kingdom and all these details are, are about to unfold, but focus on the work that the kingdom calls to us to do. I'm paraphrasing here. And he used this incredible quote of who I am going to put up there by a man named George, or George Eldon Ladd. And I, and, and I want you to like, let this quote sort of sink in as to the basis of where we start. He said this, It is impossible to construct an eschatological scheme from Jesus' teaching. He's concerned with the certainty of the future and the bearing of the future on the present, not with the apocalyptic schemata. Some of you are sitting there and being like, what on earth? What he's basically saying is, if you're reading Jesus' words about the end times and how they're going to unfold, okay, so remember who this guy is. He's, he's a, a very well-known theologian. And what he's saying is, it's almost impossible for you to map out the exact way and the how and all these things about what Jesus is going to do in terms of the timeline of history. One thing we can be certain of is that it's going to happen. So I want to start off there. And I want to start off there looking at a text that is ancient, that meant something way different to a bunch of people that it was first spoken to. And as we look at that text, I want to draw principles and things out of it and figure out where do we fit on that timeline. And so with God's help, I'm hoping that we can get this idea, a, a refreshed idea of this passage and what it is that we as people in the 21st century are to do with this text. So a little bit of context. Jesus is basically wrapping up his earthly ministry by this time. He's getting close to uh, the Last Supper and getting close to the, uh, his death and resurrection. Jesus sort of knows this. His disciples don't. And if you start reading in Matthew chapter 20, Jesus is doing a lot of things in the temple. He actually starts off by, by going to the temple and he starts talking to the Pharisees and the Sadducees and he starts um, 
Just saying, look, the reason why God had you guys here in the first place are to be the agents of restoration, are to be the light to the people. You guys have stopped doing that. I'm being really kind with my words here. If you read the words of Jesus, like, this is bad stuff that he calls these people. He doesn't just call them names. He describes them as vile people who basically steal from the innocent, doing the exact opposite that God is doing Uh, that God wants to do. And the very reason God established his people, Israel, and the temple there, they're not doing. And here's the thing. Some of these things that Jesus is implying to his people or to in these texts, in these next few chapters, is this, that this whole place is under judgment. He's like, don't don't think that you're going to get away with this for much longer. God knows, God's watching, your time's up. Now, you have to understand something really critical here. To the Jewish person, the temple is like the center of why you as a people exist. It's the place where you and God meet. Think for a second, what is the most important thing to you in your life? The thing that defines you. The very thing that makes you who you are. Could be your family. Could be your relationships. It could be your finances. It could be whatever. Fill in the blanks. Imagine Jesus coming and saying right in the center of that thing, guess what? That very thing is actually messing you up. It's changing you for the worst. And time's coming when that's going to change. Now think about this way. When you go against the religious system that has social, economical, and even political consequences... What do you think is going to happen? Scott, am I doing that? Do you want me to change something? No. What do you think is going to happen? Do you think the establishment is just going to let you go? Of course not. And so begins the plot to destroy and take away this guy who is gaining so much momentum in his message. And so Jesus gets on this absolute rampage and he starts to tell these people off. He goes, guess what? You guys are not doing everything that you're meant to do. God, there's going to be a time that's coming. And now they get to the place where they leave the temple and the disciples follow after him. And look in in chapter 24, verse 1. Jesus left the temple and was walking away with his disciples, or sorry, when his disciples came up to him, to call his attention to the buildings. You can imagine that Jesus is probably pretty ticked off by now. He's probably like completely exhausted from like just railing on these guys, telling them what's going to happen, and probably also knowing the stress of the fact that, guess what? These guys are going to take my life. And so the disciples go, but but, but sir, but, but master, but Lord... Do you see all these things? He's, they're pointing to the building. It's like, how beautiful it is, though. How can it be so corrupt? This, this is such a nice building. This is us. This is us. This is who we are. And Jesus, spoiler alert, right here, he says, I tell you the truth, not one stone will here will be left on, on another. Everyone will be thrown down. And this is when Jesus starts off his sermon at the Mount of Olives. So rightly so, these disciples are freaked out. Wait, wait a second. This thing that we have as the center of our culture, the center of our being, the thing that defines us, the very thing that gives us identity. What are you, what are you trying to say here? So naturally, this is what they come and ask. They said, 
Tell us, they said, when will this happen, and what will be the sign of your coming and of the end of the age? Here's where it starts to get a little freaky. So Jesus goes on, and we're not going to get into the details of this because we could probably do like 10 sermons on just the details of this alone. He starts telling them of several things. And last week, Kevin talked about uh, the, the different things of time and how the, the Jewish people and, and, and people in that era would understand time. And for us, reading this in the 21st century, we could see this actually happening. So for the first part of, of, verse, of chapter 24, he actually is describing an event called the abomination of desolation. Or I think it's the other way around. The de- yeah, the ab- abomination that causes desolation. And we know that this is an actual historical event that took place. You can read about it in Luke because Luke actually talks about this actual, uh, this actual incident. And that is in 70 AD. So remember, this is 30 AD. Right? Jesus is saying something is going to happen. He's like, look, something's going to happen. This temple, this center of identity, this cultural phenom that you like to to kind of hold all your marbles in, it's going to be destroyed. It's coming down. And it happens in 70 AD. After After verse 14, though, he starts going off on other things. And he starts describing some things in real colorful language. It's really dark and gloomy and stuff. And, and this is where theologians in the past have kind of like argued. There's four or five different views as to what Jesus is actually saying. And they start talking about, no, this hasn't, this hasn't happened yet. This is about to happen. No, read the times. This is what's actually happening. And I want to illustrate something to you about how I see this. So, hopefully this works. This didn't happen at rehearsal, but. I didn't think about the light shining against people, so I hope that doesn't kind of mess you up. Thanks, man. I also did this because I want to see the worship team like climb over this when they get back on the stage. So I want you to think about this as, will it, will it hold? You think? Yeah, it'll hold. That's fine. I don't need it to be perfect. I want you to think of this as a timeline of history. Imagine that this is Genesis somewhere around here, that God started creation somehow. Whatever it is that you believe out of Genesis, let's just say this is the starting point. And somewhere along the lines, again, like this is not an accurate to scale, okay? So just follow along here. Um, So Imagine that somewhere over here is the life of Jesus, right? Somewhere in this small little slice here. And let's imagine for, let's use this right here. Imagine that this is the crucifixion place of Jesus. Imagine that this is the place where Jesus dies, rises again, and commissions out the church. All right? And timeline just absolutely crumbles at that moment. But at this point is where Jesus is speaking Matthew chapter 24. He's speaking Matthew chapter 24, and he's saying, guess what? Somewhere down the line over here, something is going to happen. And Kevin talked about this. That is, the, that, is, that is the kairos moment, right? Kronos is our understanding of time in a linear fashion, right? Past, present, future. This is kronos time, the chronology of, of life. 
And Jesus is saying, something's going to happen over here. But then Jesus goes on to say something else in Matthew chapter 24, where he goes, guess what, there's a time coming where all these things are going to happen. This is the passage where he starts giving some details about things, where we've, we've done a lot of work, right, trying to interpret. And again, I could take this and continue wrapping this around our sanctuary. We have tons of shrink wrap, right? The point is, timeline will continue going on, but you don't know. He even says later on, he goes, not even the Son of Man knows. And that's the context of Matthew chapter 24. He's like, look, Israel has failed the mission of God. There's a time coming where God's going to usher in something. Now, I want you to understand how to, un- how to think about Matthew chapter 24, because what, actually, what Jesus is actually doing is he's saying, look, this might be the timeline, but guess what? God is the one who actually is along this timeline as well. And he's guiding it, and he's in midst of it. He's, he's doing things. He hasn't stopped the mission. His people might have, but he hasn't. And it brings us to this passage in verse 13 and 14, or 12 to 14. And this is the part that I want us to park on. He says this. Because of the increase of wickedness, the love of most will grow cold. But he who stands firm to the end will be saved. And this gospel of the kingdom will be preached in the whole world as a testimony to all nations. And then the end will come. So what Jesus is saying is, look, something's going to happen in your immediate history. You're going to to see this. This is going to happen. And he talks about it. This generation, it'll it'll happen. And a generation is within 40 years. And it happens at 70 AD. But then he describes events of things that are coming. And he says, look, as long as timeline goes, there's going to be something parallel to that timeline. Forget about all the stuff that people are doing. Forget about what's going on in the world. Again, this is the passage where we get the wars and the rumors of wars, all those kinds of things, right? He says, look, the gospel of the kingdom of God is still going to permeate through time and history. When God entered into our history, it wasn't for a short period of time. It was to say, look, I'm going to reclaim time. I'm going to reclaim everything that has gone haywire in timeline history or in, in the future. And I'm going to bring it about according to what my kingdom purposes are all about. And here in this passage, he's explaining to them. He's saying, look, you and I both know that the world's history is marred with failure. We know this. We know this, that from the beginning of time, sin enters the world and messes up the actual work of God. And at the start, the people of God, their mission was for what? It was to be a light, to reverse those things. It was to reverse the course of the things that are messed up by sin. They failed. And Jesus comes on the scene. And he succeeds. And by his success, he ushers in the power and the work of his Holy Spirit into the kingdom of this world, saying, you know what, regardless of what happens in the future, the work of the kingdom of God will succeed. It may look bleak. And over here he's saying, guess what? Because of this wickedness, and that word wickedness is, 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 is a result of the sin. He's like, because of the way the world is working, guess what? The love of most will grow cold. 
And it's like, he, it's like a father saying to his son before they're, or his kids before they go out onto something and do something that he's asking them to. He goes, don't give in to that. Don't give in to that. And he says, but he who stands firm to the end will be saved. And this gospel of the kingdom will be preached in the whole world. I was thinking about a couple of things, and I want to throw out to you three things to be aware of when reading Matthew chapter 24 and other passages, um, end time passages. The first one is this. You got to go back one. The first one is this. Fear, being afraid. If it's not up there, that's fine. I'll tell you this right now. I know Kevin had his story about when he first came to faith that uh, he took a Bible and he calculated the exact time that it would come and he was one year off or something like that. When I first started reading these passages, I started freaking out. You have to remember, I grew up in India where they persecute Christians. When my dad first became a missionary back to India when we had moved back to Canada, or when he had moved to Canada and he, he felt the, the Lord calling him back to India, he went to a church that he had helped some of the pastors uh, uh, start a church in the village. He had gone back a year afterwards just to find that people in the community took that entire congregation of 15 or 20 or so, locked them in their church, which was their home, and lit the entire thing on fire with them in it. You have to understand, when I read, when I read these passages in a place like India, I panicked. I was like fearful. What do I do? Most of my friends are Hindus and Muslims. You want me to tell them about Jesus? Are you nuts? There's a natural fear that kicks in. And, and I'm not saying anything about North Americans and that we don't face that type of persecution or anything like that. But yes, we do face some level of obstruction or, or arguments or going against the course of what the Bible talks to us about. In case you haven't wondered, we don't live in a very Christian-friendly country. What I mean by that is that a lot of the values of what we talk about here on Sunday, a lot of the values that we think about in terms of the kingdom are not reflected in the ways that are done. And so when we read about these things and we read about the fact that there are persecutions, that there are things that are going to come against that, fear becomes the natural issue. And what does fear do? It shrinks us up. It puts us and huddles us up in a corner. And that's not the M.O., of the kingdom of God. You notice what Jesus is saying is in the midst of this timeline, in the midst of all of this stuff that's going on, the kingdom of God forges ahead, forges through that history, no matter how difficult and how dark that is. And here we're being called, we're being expected to jump into it. The next thing I would say to be aware when we read these things is to be complacent and lazy. Well, when you read this stuff and you're like, well, I guess if it's been 2,000 years, what's another 1,000 years? So why should I do anything? Oh, Jesus will come back, but maybe not in my lifetime. That's the wrong attitude to have. It's sort of like um, the joke that my, one of my friends, who's not a, not a, not a Christian, he, he says, I guess you could just have to pretend to be busy when Jesus shows up. But if you think about it, this passage doesn't say to us, all right, here's where now you have to like get in your corner and regroup and figure stuff out. There's a task ahead for us. The same God 
that is forging ahead through our future, the same God that has been working through our past, is the God who's at alive and at work in us, urging us to forge ahead in the work of that ministry, in that work of the kingdom. If we read these passages correctly, it should tell us that we have confidence in this God who's got it all under control. The last one comes from one of my mentors. He said this, when we get busy being detectives more than being disciples. What I mean by this is there is so much here about the end times. And we can go and dive into the deep end and just go absolutely crazy and spend a lifetime trying to figure this stuff out. One of my biggest mistakes of when I was trying to research for this passage was I clicked on YouTube and I typed in Matthew 24. Oh my goodness, the, the, the people and their whiteboards and their notes and PowerPoints and stuff of how and what and where and why. And I'm telling you this, I'm not, I'm not knocking anybody for doing this, go ahead and research. But if this becomes the consuming factor of your life and you forget about the actual call that you have on your life, there's an issue. We are called to be disciples, my mentor said. If Jesus himself doesn't know when that is, what makes you think you're going to beat him to that punch? Those are the things to be aware of. So what do we focus on? I feel like this is probably like the most repeated and cliche answer, but Jesus and his mission. That's it. Focus on Jesus and his mission. This is a tough one. I, I like doing photography, as some of you may know, and uh, you learn some crazy things about what makes a good picture and what makes a bad picture, and you realize that at times, the best photographers are the ones who know what should be in focus, what subject should be in focus. And at times, it's, it's about how you adjust the lens. It's at times, it's about how you allow light to come in. It's a, there are a lot of these factors. But the bottom line is this. To make a good picture, to make a good photo, you have to know what your subject is and focus on it. Because if you don't, all of a sudden, the background, the trees, the noise, all of the stuff in the back becomes the subject. And all of a sudden, the thing that you want to focus on fades away. There's a lot of noise in here. There's a lot of background stuff. There's a lot of stuff that we have no clue about, and there's a lot of stuff that we shouldn't know about. But oftentimes, if we're focused on our fear because of what we see, if we're focused on the fact that, hey, it's been so long since Jesus has come back, Jesus has promised coming back, why should I care now? Or if we're so caught up in the fact that we're calculating all these things, our focus is easily taken off of Jesus. We cannot be the people for whom he says, and then love has grown cold. He says here in verse 13, he who stands firm till the end. Do you know what, people? That word in the Greek, standing firm, is not a passive thing. 
It's not like us standing here and saying, I'm just waiting for someone to knock me over. Go ahead. It's not a standing firm as in like, I'm going to not let anybody move me from here. It's an active thing. It's a wherever I go in my world that God has called me to, I'm going to stand firm on the fact that God has got this. I'm going to stand firm in the fact that God has overcome the future and his promise to come back. And his kingdom will spread throughout eternity. And I have the confidence in Jesus and he's given me a spirit to be able to do that. To stand firm is to say, yeah, I'm not just listening to the words of God, but I'm taking them at his word. Think about what happens next in the several years after Jesus, uh, you know, ascends into heaven after the whole Easter thing, the first Easter thing. The world is changed by this handful of disciples. These fishermen, these like scum of society. They didn't go away and huddle and say, you know what, oh man, people are going to kill us. They went out and they spoke in the spirit. They went out and they did things and they forged ahead along what God was doing. And that's the thing we ought to focus on. This Jesus didn't let those disciples down then. This Jesus didn't let those other people who followed along, the church fathers, those who helped carry this tradition to where you and I can sit here and say we can worship freely. He didn't let them go then. He, he, was, he was good to them. His promises endured to them. You can bet and trust that Jesus is going to be good where you stand. And then there's this verse that gives us whole load of hope and the gospel of the kingdom will be preached in the whole world another way you can say this is that the gospel will will penetrate all facets of this world to all people you know for the first time after reading this passage I'll tell you my response it was a different response than when I've read this for the last handful of times that I've read this in the last few times I've read this, I've, I've overthought this passage. I've kind of like put too much cerebral like material to it. I was like, ah, I guess, you know, if Jesus is going to come back, he's going to do it this way. He's going to do it this way. This week as I was praying about this passage, I was like, okay, so what? So what, God? Your gospel is going to go out through the rest of this world and all throughout time. So what? And I realized that as I was asking that question, God was asking me that question. Okay, Jim. My gospel of this kingdom, of restoration and all that stuff, is going to go throughout the rest of time. It will probably surpass you in your lifetime. And who knows when I'll come back kind of thing, right? So what? So what? And I'll tell you, my response was this. I'm scared about this. Like, scared of saying this and that. All right, send me. Send me. Send me to my neighbor. Send me to the grocery store. What would you have me do? Where is it that the gospel of this redemptive kingdom of yours is needed? Where do I need to go? My hope and my prayer for us this morning 
is that we would not be paralyzed by fear, we would not be overcome by laziness, and we would not be distracted by all those details for which have eluded theologians for thousands of years. Hey, study it, that's cool. But that we would stand firm in the places that God has put us. Know that he has given us his spirit to do the work that, guess what, will probably overrun your life and continue to do greater things in time and in the future. You can have that hope and that trust in God. Let's pray. Lord Jesus, I believe you're coming back. I believe that what you said is true. I believe that that your work came at great sacrifice. Lord, I also know that we're also human. And, and oftentimes we struggle with these things, things that we don't see or cannot control. And so, Father, I pray for an infusion of your spirit in a way that not just gives us the confidence, but gives us the focus to see Jesus who's gone ahead of us Father, I pray this morning that you would help us to see the places where your kingdom work is still needed. Father, give us creativity. Give us, give us a new insights on how and where to relate. And Father God, I pray that as your kingdom work continues to advance in those places, that we would find ourselves there. God, I pray that should we face persecution, should we face opposition, Lord Jesus, help us to know in those sufferings, the sufferings that you went through. Help us to know that there's a comforter who's in us, who's there to give us that ultimate comfort, to know that this is not all in vain. We bless you, God. We thank you for redeeming our history and our future. We thank you that we're able to look to the fact that one day all things will be made right by your hands. We thank you, and I pray all these things in Jesus' name. Amen.